Good evening, everybody. My name is Mike Ferguson. I am the Communications Director for Show Me Opportunity, which represents the Show Me Institute. Thank you so much for taking some of your time this evening to hear from us as far as what we believe the opportunities are for the state of Missouri, and our CEO, Brenda Talent, is going to tell us more about that and what we're doing this evening and in this uh, current time of just a lot of uncertainty when it comes to policy in our state. Now, this particular telephone town hall meeting isn't just us telling you what we think. We also want to hear from you as well. So uh, please, please be involved in the program itself here. So you can ask questions, talk to one of our screeners, and then let us know what you'd like to ask, and you can interact directly with the Show Me Institute policy experts. We will also have some poll questions tonight that uh, you can be a part of so we can get just kind of our finger on the pulse and you can make your voice heard as far as the issues affecting our state. You're going to hear uh, on policy issues ranging from education to taxes to public subsidies. There's a lot of that discussion right now with the Amazon decision to not come to our state. So there's a lot of ground to cover, but most importantly, we do want to hear from you. And with that, I will turn the call over at this point to the Show Me Institute CEO, Brenda Talent. Brenda? Thank you, Mike. As most of you on the phone know, the Show Me Institute is the only free market think tank in Missouri. Our mission is advancing liberty with responsibility by promoting market solutions for Missouri public policy. Earlier this week, we issued our 2018 blueprint for moving Missouri forward, and you can see that at showmeinstitute.org. This blueprint contains 16 policies that we believe will help Missouri grow and Missourians prosper. And, and, you know, we have a lot of room to grow. The legislature already has a number of bills pending that reflect the policies that we discuss in this blueprint and that we're going to discuss tonight. Whether it's giving parents real choice in directing their children's education, giving workers real freedom to earn a living, or determining how much in taxes we have to pay, we understand that the laws and regulations of our state and our localities affect the opportunity of people to flourish and prosper. And I'm proud to say that the staff at the Show Me Institute cares deeply about helping Missourians make a better life for themselves and their families. Now, we understand the reality. Missouri is competing in a global economy, and more specifically with 49 other states to attract businesses and residents. We need to up our game to win that competition, and we need to win because it makes a difference in the quality of people's lives. Tonight, you're going to hear from our experts about ways we believe Missouri can up its game. We want to thank you for joining us, and please ask questions. We'd love to engage in a discussion about what can help move our state forward. Thank you, Brenda. Just ahead here, we are going to talk about education reform, and again, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about uh, subsidies and uh, what we like to call corporate welfare. But let's get started with the Show Me Institute's Director of Government Accountability. He works out of our Kansas City office, Patrick Ishmael. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Brenda. Um, and welcome, everybody, to tonight's, uh, tonight's talk. Um, as the Director of Government Accountability, I focus on a wide variety of topics, uh, among them tax policy, that includes the Earned Income Tax Credit and Income Tax Reform generally. Both of those are blueprint items. Uh, Health care reform, that includes Obamacare, that includes Medicaid, that includes Certificate of Need, which is also a blueprint item. It includes transparency, and I hope in the next few months you'll be hearing a lot more about municipal transparency. My colleague, Philip Olerking, is helping to spearhead an effort to get more transparency in our local government. So hopefully you'll hear a little bit more about that uh, in the weeks and months ahead. And then broadly, 
as director of government accountability, I also I also look at uh, the uh, relationships between government and non-government actors, and what's that kind of look like uh, in tax credits. What that means is the way the government uh, assigns out money, gives money for certain behaviors that maybe special interests have created these programs to their own benefit. Those are kind of problematic relationships. Uh, the relationship uh, between government and construction interests, for instance, through the prevailing wage, which is also a blueprint item, um, that can raise the cost of public projects. It could mean the difference between starting a project and not starting a project, and it impacts taxpayers uh, every single year. And last but certainly not least, it's an issue that we're going to deal with and work on for uh, a long time, and it's a very important issue, and it's government union reform. And when we talk about government unions, I think a lot of times when, when we start that conversation, folks think, oh, well, government unions are kind of like private unions. And, and really, in, in fact, they're not. Uh, when you look at a private union, you know, if the UAW is negotiating with General Motors, a sweetheart deal for the UAW may be good for the short term, but at the end of the day, uh, if that impacts GM's bottom line and if that company isn't able to survive, that company could actually collapse. The idea is that you have two uh, actors on either side of the table who have opposing interests, certainly a shared interest to make money, but opposing interests in terms of what their, their respective uh, goals are. And what you see with government, though, is that you don't see that sort of distinct set of interests. In fact, uh, Franklin Roosevelt himself was opposed to the idea of collective bargaining in, with, with government it, for that very reason, that you could have a government union that could actually elect their own representatives and essentially negotiate with themselves with taxpayer money. Now, the list of reforms that, that uh, could be considered if you're looking for reforms in this space is, is pretty lengthy, but high among them are reforms like paycheck protection, which would allow for uh, members to have greater control over their own paychecks and exactly uh, when that money goes to unions and when it doesn't. Uh, recertification of unions, making sure that there are regular elections for uh, representation for these unions and for these members. Uh, transparency in union finances. Uh, you see a little bit more of that in private unions. You don't really see as much of it in government unions. Uh, I think that that needs to change. And then open collective bargaining. Uh, that's a blueprint item as well. We want to be able to make sure that taxpayers can see what exactly is going on behind closed doors and make sure that the interests that are being represented, that you do have those opposing views, that it isn't just a matter of uh, you know two people who are maybe on other sides of the table, but they're really on the same side of the table. You need to have a, an effective taxpayer representation. And I think that's why open collective bargaining is so important, so that taxpayers can see what is going on, what is being negotiated, and why when it comes to these contracts uh, with these unions. Um, I think that uh, all those uh, reforms are opportunities in 2018. I think 2017, we're hoping for a lot of these as well. Uh, certainly our hopes are a little bit higher in 2018. Uh, and, and certainly as the year goes on, uh, if you have questions, please reach out to us uh, either through email. You can give us a phone call in our respective offices. And certainly, uh, if you have a question, we have lots of opportunities to talk tonight about it. Uh, and so if you have a question, please uh, reach out to us, and uh, I'd be happy to answer them. But uh, I appreciate your time tonight, and I will hopefully see you or talk to you soon. Okay, Nan, we have a question for Patrick here in just a moment that has to do with a statewide issue. That was Patrick Ishmael, our Director of Government Accountability. We are going to do our first poll question of the night in just a moment, but to Patrick's point, you can reach out to us anytime after this phone call. Just go to showmeinstitute.org and you will find all of our contact information there, our emails, our uh, numbers to our, our different offices in St. Louis and Kansas City. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and start the poll 
polling for one, our first question of the night, and that has to do with public sector unions. The question is, what should be the policy priority regarding public sector unions in Missouri? You can press one for require open collective bargaining. You can press two for require regular public union recertification votes. Or you can press three if you think we should not have a change in current Missouri policy. That poll is open right now. And let's go to our first question. And Patrick Ishmael, this one is probably going to be right up your alley. Let's go to Thomas, who is calling from Columbia. Thomas, you are on with Patrick Ishmael. Okay. I'd like to know what our what we're going to do about public transportation and if we can get behind the gas tax to get something going that really creates jobs. And, and we, we have... No minutia for the last nine years. The legislature can raise the gas tax by two cents without a vote of the people, but we've done nothing, and the costs have gone up 30 40%. Concrete was $93 a yard back in 98, and now it's 100, but we have no policy. No, they're not doing anything. There is starting to be some momentum behind the idea of an increase in the gas tax. Um, what it will likely be joined with, though, is general tax reform, and that includes reductions in income taxes, uh, reductions in issuances of tax credits, so that at the end of the day, what you'll probably see is something that looks pretty revenue neutral. So you would have an increase in gas taxes, but you have a reduction in other taxes. As a general matter, that's actually really good policy, because particularly when you're talking about infrastructure, which, which is an appropriate role of government, um, you want to be able to assign those costs out to use as closely as you can. And gas taxes, it's not perfect, but it is far closer than kind of the, the proposals that we've seen in the past, including a general sales tax or, or other things that try to tax everybody, and it's not really based off of how much they use the roadways. Um, and, and like you say, uh, you know, we have not increased the gas tax in, in some time. I think it's something like 20 years. So we're, we're essentially spending... Uh, 1996 dollars on 2018 costs, uh, and and there are things that I think need to happen in the state in terms of uh, infrastructure improvements. But um, I think compared to past years, there may be a little bit more uh, interest in pursuing that. But I think that interest is bound up with general tax reform, and I think overall that's a good thing. Okay, thank you, Patrick Ishmael, uh, with the answer there. And uh, Patrick Ishmael, this next one probably will go with you, uh, and that comes from Mike, and Mike is calling from St. Louis. Mike, you're on with Patrick Ishmael. Hey, uh, Pat, uh, uh, as you know, 16 years ago, Illinois voted to deregulate their electricity and natural gas. And I see no way, no reason that the, the, the people in Missouri are still operating under a monopoly. When are they going to get a choice to pick a supplier for their electric and natural gas use? <laughs> well, thank you for that question. It's a great question. It's one that's uh, really kind of ramped up in the last couple of years. Um, it, it, that isn't known, unfortunately. And there are a lot of states that do provide for electrical choice. Um, New York is one of them. And it works. I mean, it, it, whenever you have a, a system that imposes basically one provider, I think you end up seeing a little bit less innovation. You see less incentive to reduce uh, the, the cost for consumers. Uh, electrical choice is is good for consumers, and I think you know I would love to see the state move in that direction. As far as whether there's uh, you know a critical mass to, to go that direction, I don't know that we're there yet, unfortunately. But 
Um, I think that that conversation has certainly uh, increased in the last couple of years, and I think rightfully so. I think consumers deserve choice in their electricity, and the sooner that happens, the better. Okay, we're going to hear from our Director of Municipal Policy, Patrick Tuohy, in just a moment. Uh, The first poll question of the night on public sector unions. Uh, Interesting results here. Okay, so the question was, what should the policy priority be regarding public sector unions in Missouri? We had a very kind of close vote. Uh, The leading vote was require regular public union recertification votes. Fifty percent of those of you who participated said that should be the priority. A very close 47 percent said it should be require open collective bargaining. And three percent of those who cast votes said there should not be a change to current Missouri policy. Thank you very much to everybody who participated, and we will have more poll questions through the remainder of this phone call. Let's go ahead and move uh, to Patrick Chewy. He's, as, as I said, our Director of uh, Municipal Policy, and he also works out of our Kansas City office. Patrick? Uh, good evening, everybody, and thank you for uh, spending some time with us. You know, um, all of us at the Show Me Institute spend uh, not just time behind the desk looking at spreadsheets and, uh, and researching data, but we get out and uh, make presentations much like tonight's call and, uh, and write for publications around the state trying to get the word out. And we are often, uh, the Show Me Institute, lampooned or caricatured as being against taxes, just in, against taxes in general. And that, uh, that always bothers me because the power uh, of taxation is perhaps the biggest, greatest power that the people give their government. And as conservatives, we want to make sure that that power is used judiciously and efficiently. Uh, but oftentimes what happens uh, around the state of Missouri, and, and Missouri is not unique in this, is that uh, we don't respect the power of taxation. Cities uh, hand out uh, tax breaks and tax credits willy-nilly. Uh, they use uh, you know, lobbyists use their political influence to carve out special deals for themselves that, of course, are often made up for by the taxes that, that others pay. In, in terms of a business, you know, we learned today that uh, neither Kansas City nor St. Louis will be considered for an Amazon headquarters, but the amount of, of again, tax credits, tax subsidies, economic development dollars diverted to these companies is, is in the billions of dollars. And we ask oftentimes smaller businesses that are in competition with Amazon's to, uh, to foot the bill. And so I think it is respect for the power of taxation to make sure that if we're going to tax the people, we treat the people fairly and we treat them equally. And that certainly is a, a principle that should be true at the state level, but oftentimes uh, in the municipalities around Missouri, Kansas City and St. Louis, uh, Joplin, Springfield, um, municipal leaders have just as much ability to, uh, you know, to, to spend taxpayer dollars unwisely. You may recall a few years ago, uh, the governor at the time was uh, saying that Missouri was a low-tax state. And certainly, uh, there may be an argument for that for state-level taxes. But if you live in Kansas City or St. Louis, the amount of uh, property tax and income tax, sales taxes that are levied on you uh, really increase your, your burden And so when you look at a statewide rate of taxation, uh, it doesn't give you the full picture. I am hopeful that this legislative session, the the General Assembly, will start looking at the language it has used to grant taxing and subsidizing power to localities to make sure that they are using it wisely. For example, oftentimes 
uh, cities use their ability to offer economic development subsidies to businesses uh, by diverting funds away from important government services such as schools and libraries. And oftentimes, the research around the country tells us that the things that we're subsidizing, uh, businesses would do anyway. You can imagine a, a business that wants to build a, a world headquarters for itself is going to do it if it makes good economic sense. Um, without public subsidies, maybe it doesn't have a fifth floor, or maybe its parking garage isn't as uh, elaborate, but it will do it if it makes sense. In the, in the cities around Missouri, we have fooled ourselves into thinking that you know, private business needs government subsidy to operate, and, and it ends up eating away at our bottom line. In Kansas City and St. Louis, we divert so many millions of dollars each year away from basic services that we find we're unable to uh, provide for uh, transit or education or public safety. And the result is, of course, that local taxes are increased to make up for it. I'm hopeful that when it comes to economic development subsidies, when it comes to special taxing districts like community improvement districts or transportation development districts, that uh, the legislature really says we want to make sure that that incredible power of taxation that the people have granted their government is used wisely and is respected. All right, thank you. That's, uh, again, Patrick Tuey, who works in our Kansas City office. He's our uh, director of municipal policy. And once again, please connect with us uh, after the call. Go to showmeinstitute.org to stay up to date with the research that's being done. Uh, there are all kinds of blog uh, reports that are being posted daily, and you can also find the 2018 Missouri Blueprint. Uh, education, obviously, is a huge aspect of public policy in our state, and we're really excited to welcome our newest director, to the Show Me Institute, and that is Susan Pendergrass. And uh, she has just recently come on board. She's hit the ground running, and uh, you are not going to find somebody more knowledgeable in the field of education policy. Susan, welcome to the Show Me Institute. The floor is yours. Thank you, Mike, and thank you, Brenda, too, for hosting this tonight and, and for everyone who's listening. Yeah, I just want to take a few minutes to discuss what we have in our blueprint this year that relates to education policy and what we might be able to get done um, first, we have a really good opportunity this year to expand charter schools beyond Kansas City and St. Louis. The way our law is currently designed, the only way for a charter school to open anywhere else in the state is to be sponsored by their local school board, which is very unlikely to happen. And we believe that it's time to give all parents access to a high-quality charter school, certainly all parents who want them. And right now, about 80% of the uh, students in Missouri only get one choice when it comes to where they'll go to school, and that's the one that they're assigned to based on their address, which is basically the same as having no choice. And this year, we'd like to see legislation that allows charter schools across the state to open by being able to apply to sponsors other than their local district. And we want to harness what we know are all the great ideas out there, uh, public school teachers, public school leaders, parents, community leaders. I think it's time to... Um, create more of these great schools and give more parents access to them. And, and in fact, there was a survey done a couple years ago of Missouri uh, voters and parents, and more than one in nine Missouri uh, registered voters said that they would choose a charter school as their very first choice if they could. And as by comparison, only about 2% of our students attend one right now. So we know that there is a lot more demand than there is, than there is supply, and we think it's time to make that change. 
The second thing that we'd like to see happen this year is to make sure that we give every student in the state access to the courses that they need to graduate from high school, college, and career ready. And many, too many of our students, 40% of them, don't have access to higher level courses like physics and calculus. And we understand that it can be hard to uh, come up with the resources for that in a small district, a small community, where you have a limited number of teachers and it's hard to find good teachers in those subjects. But the fact is, we have a structure in place right now in Missouri called the Missouri Virtual Instruction Program that has courses that have been accredited by DETSI that students could access right now by simply taking an hour out of their day to go to the library or a computer lab. And we need to make sure it's a policy that school districts are required to provide that. Right now, the burden is on the parents and on the students, and they can try to convince their school district to pay for it. But we don't think that that's the way to go. I think that this year we have an opportunity to make sure that every student in the state has access to all the courses they need. This is going to be imperative to Missouri's future in, in terms of being competitive and having growth and making sure that our students, when they go to college, are ready to go. Obviously, there are bright and talented students across the entire state. They're not just in the wealthy suburban districts, and we need to make sure that we're serving all of them. Finally, we would really like to move forward this year on setting up educational savings accounts for parents to access. These are accounts that would be funded through tax credits given to any individual or corporation who chooses to donate to an organization that administers and makes the funds available to parents. And by providing a portion of a child's state funding directly to their parents, maybe in the form of a debit card, for example, the state of Missouri would be acknowledging that parents know what educational services their child needs and that these needs may go beyond the assigned public school. And then for those uh, individuals and corporations who choose to donate, this is an opportunity for them to put their tax dollars directly in the hand of parents rather than sending them to Jefferson City. Uh, these programs are happening in dozens of states and they can work and they can um, allow parents to access private school tuition, tutoring, online courses, and we think it's really important to move forward with that this year. And overall, I would just say that it's time to acknowledge that all parents want what's best for their child, and that's a good education, and there's lots of ways to come at that, and we want to make sure that every parent has multiple options available to them to make that happen. Okay, that's Susan uh, Pendergrass, who is our newest director at the Show Me Institute. And Susan, I have a follow-up question for you. And speaking of questions, we're going to go ahead and open up our second poll of the night. Okay, so here is the question. It is education policy priority. What should the policy priority for education be in our state? Dial 1 if you believe that it should be expanding access to charter schools. Dial 2 if you think it should be expanding course access. Hit three, if you believe it should be established statewide education savings accounts. Or you can also press four, if you believe there should be no change in current Missouri policy. And Susan, let me kind of put you on the spot real quick. One of the arguments we hear against school choice quite a bit is something like a charter school expansion could compete with or drain or harm the public schools, in, particularly in rural areas. And the argument being sometimes is that, 
we have to preserve the resources, and the priority should be the traditional public schools. What did charter schools, or at least the option of a charter school, bring to kind of the table for parents in areas where maybe there aren't that many resources in particular? One of the unique features of charter schools is that they are more autonomous. They're much more autonomous than regular public schools, and they're freed from many of the regulations that traditional public schools are subjected to. So they have flexibility in terms of hiring, staffing, curriculum design, um, structure of the day, structure of the school year. And for many uh, rural communities that are struggling with limited funds and uh, difficulty filling teaching positions, charter schools actually can be a good option for finding uh, ways that, to be more creative and solving some of those solutions. Also, I think that uh, you know, there, in other states there are strong charter school networks in rural areas. In particular, the KIPP program has uh, quite a few schools in the Arkansas Delta and in Oklahoma, and they have a rural school program that can be tailored to the needs of the community. So I don't think that they should just be discounted for those communities, because I think that they can actually offer a lot of innovative and creative solutions. Susan, this uh, coming week is National School Choice Week. Uh, give us just a very quick preview of what people can expect from the Show Me Institute when it comes to content and when it comes to things to think about for National School Choice Week. Sure. National School Choice Week is actually a really big deal. It's very exciting. Across the country, there's going to be thirty more than 32,000 celebrations going on. Um, largely in states that offer parents a variety of options, not so much uh, offered in Missouri. So we will um, maybe have to sit it out a little bit this year. We're hoping to be um, joining the party next year in a much more strong fashion if we are able to give parents more choices. But just to let folks know what it looks like each day next week, we're going to feature a different form of school choice. For example, some of the ones I talked about tonight, education savings accounts, charter school expansion, but also homeschooling, and also talking about uh, the private schools in the state and that there are already, like right now, maybe more than 25,000 uh, private school seats available that are unfilled, and students are more likely to have a private school close to their uh, public school than they are another public school. So we need to let uh, parents know more about that information. And then we're also going to talk uh, to your earlier question one day our content will be around um, charter schools serving rural communities. So if you pay attention to our blog next week, you're going to have an opportunity to learn a lot more about school choice, including the options that we don't currently offer to parents. And we're hoping that that knowledge will help build enthusiasm for the types of things we want to get done this year. Uh, Susan, it looks like we have a call here that has to do with uh, some of the curriculum and possibly STEM courses in the state. And uh, this is, my computer screen's freezing up a little bit. Barbara, you are on with Dr. Pendergast. Uh, Dr. Pendergast, uh, I would like to ask you about more history, science, and math being put back in the schools because so many children do not get that in their curriculum. Mm -hmm. And I am in a rural school district, but science isn't, doesn't seem to be a priority out in this rural district. And I think it really should be because I came from a community where it was, and mm -hmm. they had science fairs, and, and it was mm -hmm. amazing that the young, the kids, how they would uh, do things on their, well, their with their families, which was the way it was set up, the mm -hmm. science fairs. But I think 
that probably should be all over the state. Science fairs were wonderful. Thank you so much for the question, Barbara. Yeah, I agree. And um, it is it's, it's troubling to learn the uh, high percentage, the 40-plus percentage of students who attend a school that doesn't offer physics. What we do know going forward is that in the state of Missouri, the demand for jobs in science, technology, engineering, and math is going to be about twice as much as the demand for all other jobs. And we know in particular that um, there's going to be a triple the demand in advanced manufacturing in our state. So our students need to have these skills. And I think we need to reprioritize and make sure certainly every student who's interested in it uh, has access to it and also in building an interest in it. And then the other thing is that, you know, um, this is a good example of why school choice can be really important because while that is a priority for you, and I think that's a solid priority, maybe other people have other priorities. And when you are um, uh, only given one choice, which is the way your school system is run and nothing else, then you don't really have a choice. And if that's important to you, you can't speak out of school where science, technology, history, and math are important. So uh, I agree with you that everybody uh, should have access to that. We're hoping to make that happen uh, in Missouri. And I also agree that, you know, this is, Different parents have and, and uh, citizens have different ways of viewing the educational system, and, and yours is, is a really good one, but everyone should be able to pursue what they think is important. All right, Susan, thank you. Again, once, again go to showmeinstitute.org, and you're going to get uh, our National School Choice Week uh, content and our blog post uh, all week long. But let's go ahead and get the results of the second poll that we just closed, and the question was, what should be the policy priority for education in Missouri? Overwhelmingly, 63% of you who voted said that the policy priority should be to expand access to charter schools. Just over a quarter, 26% of those who voted said that expanding course access should be the policy, and uh, 11% of those who voted said that establishing a statewide education savings account program should be the policy priority. Nobody, interestingly, nobody answered there should be no change in Missouri policy. So everybody who voted felt that there should be some kind of policy Priorities. Now, once again, you still have time to ask one of our policy experts a question. Uh, let me go ahead and just kind of volunteer a question as well. And uh, let me let me ask this for Patrick Tuey, who is our director of municipal policy. Uh, Patrick, we just heard about uh, Amazon not choosing Missouri, not choosing Kansas City, not choosing St. Louis. But we also hear a lot of people saying if these these subsidies, whether it's TIFs or special taxing districts, if they don't happen, then it's really hard for states in the Midwest like ours to compete for these large projects. We didn't get it this time, but we've got to do it to compete because other places are doing it, and we might as well at least compete on a playing field that we may not like. What's, what's the right policy answer, and what are the things you want people to keep in mind when they hear arguments like this? Well, it, it certainly is a common argument, not only between states. You know, we're competing with Illinois, and we got to offer the best sweetheart deal. But, but even with the state of Missouri, think of, uh, you know, a big box store that is thinking of placing itself somewhere, and the small towns uh, along the highway each vying uh, to get it and, and giving away a great deal of potential revenue um, to get that. And so it, it has become a problem nationwide. But oftentimes, it, it, it means that we sacrifice good, fair 
equitable policy um, for the idea of, uh, you know, getting a big win. Uh, you know, a few years ago when the Kansas City Royals were doing very well and won the World Series, uh, we talked about how the, the Royals had a very simple strategy, which was to keep the line moving, get on base, and, uh, and everybody uh, follow kind of playing good basics rather than trying to swing for the fences. But what happens in municipal policy, and, and Kansas City and St. Louis are no exception, is we want to uh, build something big and grand. And we think if we just get this one next project, whether it's an airport or a convention hotel or a streetcar, then we'll be in the big leagues and all our problems will be solved. But that never works. Instead, what we need to do is treat everybody the same in our tax code and become a good environment for everybody. And as a result of that, uh, when you lower taxes for everybody, businesses come to you. Uh, there are several examples of that, but uh, you know, Google Fiber, uh, a few years ago, much like Amazon, held a national competition to uh, to choose where it was going to put its first fiber optic, uh, you know, high speed uh, cable system. And you'll remember that Topeka changed their name to Google for a day. The city that won that was just across the border from us in Kansas, Kansas City, Kansas. And if you look at uh, when Google announced the winner, what they said at the time was, we like this city because it is business-friendly, taxes are low, red tape is low, and it's efficient. And that's why they chose that. Never mind the fact that Kansas City, Missouri offered all sorts of big federal loans and contracts. If we just focus on the basics, uh, we will succeed. I understand that cities and towns are always scrambling for that next big thing, um, Enrico Moretti is an economist. He wrote a book a few years ago about the innovation centers across the United States, and he was being interviewed on NPR radio. And the interviewer said, you look at all these towns, uh, you know, Redmond, Washington, and Seattle, that have become innovation centers. What did those governments do to prepare themselves for it? And Moretti said, nothing. What we found is that these cities and towns that are became innovation centers became that way for things that government did not and could not have prepared for. It just was dumb luck. And so we keep telling ourselves that if we offer these subsidies, if we just compete, that you know we'll get Amazon. But really, businesses go where it makes sense, and oftentimes what makes sense to them are efficient, low-tax environments. Okay, thank you. That was Patrick uh, Tuey from our Kansas City office. He's our Director of Municipal Policy. Okay, let's go ahead and start our last poll of this evening. This will be kind of a flash poll, so you want to answer fairly quickly. The question is this. Which topic that we have discussed is impacting your household the most? Press 1 if it's education. Press 2 if it's taxes. Press 3 if it's union accountability. Or press 4 if these policies aren't affecting you or the debates over them are not affecting you at all. All right, let's go ahead and go back this is call is from Randy, who is calling from, I believe that's going to be Poplar Bluff. So, Randy, you are connected with the Show Me Institute experts. Thank you for calling in. Thank you. Um, my question is, why would we not want to revisit the closing of the Delaware loophole, Jeffrey loophole, uh, which 22 other states in the country have closed, to harvest that revenue for these Delaware corporations and earmark it for road and bridge construction. 
Okay. Randy, thank you so much for the call. Um, Brenda, would you like to at least set the stage for kind of make turning that question into layman's terms so we understand what that is? Okay. To explain to those who don't uh, are not familiar with the concept of Delaware holding companies, um, there was um, tax planning for corporations where you set up a Delaware holding company, and what you can do have that company do is you can have it hold intangibles like uh, trademarks, trade names, um, things that are licensed, if you will, and that was the Jeffrey case. The to- it's also known as the Toys R Us case. And then you license the use of those trademarks and trade names to another entity, and it could be a subsidiary, it could be an affiliate, and you would charge, you know, they would pay you, the Delaware Holding Company, royalties for the use of that that product, and as a, and they would get a deduction against their income tax for paying you those royalties. And you could use it for uh, royalties, licensing um, special items, or you could do something where you are loaning money. And so then the interest becomes a deduction to the company in the state, and the, the holding company takes that income in, but there's a very low, very low tax rate for that, that company. And in Jeffrey, uh, South Carolina, I believe it is, determined that when you're licensing intangibles, those intangibles, not to get too much in the weeds here, create a presence in the state. And so they could tax uh, that income because they said there was a presence there. In Missouri, we had a Supreme Court decision which basically said that for Missouri to tax that kind of income, a company needs to have either property, payroll, or sales within the state. And when you're, when a company like a Delaware holding company is licensing a product or is loaning money, they don't have, under the Missouri Supreme Court's decision, property, payroll, or sales within the state. And so as a consequence, uh, state, uh, you know, the company here gets a deduction, but the income that's going over to the other company isn't. And I think this really goes back, and I'm going to punt it over to Patrick on this, is really goes to the question of really should we be even talking about corporate income taxes because they are not a really good tax for generating revenue for the state. And, in fact, Patrick wrote a paper with Michael Rathbone on that entire issue. And, and so you do see game playing like this happening um, and, of course, the state can change its laws to mimic what South Carolina has done in order to try to capture that income by saying, if you have intangible uh, income being generated, well, we get to tax that. But, but, Patrick, why don't you talk a little bit about the whole notion of taxing corporations in the first place? Yeah, and, and it's going to be hard to add to that great explanation. But, you know, if you look at the research generally, corporate income taxes are the worst taxes for growth. and income you know personal income taxes sales taxes and property taxes after that so if you're trying to promote growth you really want to move away from income taxes and and particularly the corporate income tax because those are those are taxes that are, are passed along to everyone any anyway and and particularly if you want to encourage investment uh you don't want to take that money away from the moment that the person can receive or that co- corporation can receive that money because think of your own savings account you know they or I'll, I'll give you a, a metaphor. Uh, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is today. There, There is something very important about being able to hold on to something and hold on to it for a long period of time. And the longer that you can hold on to that money and actually invest that money, the better the benefits are going to be to you and the better the benefits are going to be toward the government that would eventually tax you maybe through a sales tax instead. Um, that is why tax policy is so important. 
Um, as far as you know, whether we would want to harvest that money for infrastructure, I would say no, not in particular. I like the idea of uh, instead uh, going towards a, you know a fuel tax that looks more like a user fee instead. And if we're going to uh, you know tax income like that at all, I'd rather we not. But I would rather it not be dedicated towards something where I would rather see a, a user fee instead. But but like Brenda said, uh, I mean, if, if you want to avoid that sort of gamesmanship. I would I would suggest reducing those income taxes, both corporate and personal, uh, and moving towards an elimination of those and relying more on on sales taxes and making sure that you have a broad base and, and one that promotes innovation and growth rather than one that uh, you have to chase people down across the country to uh, to try to, to fund your government. All right, thank you. That was Patrick Ishmael, our director of uh, government accountability, and I'm going to go ahead and close our last poll of the evening. And wow, did we get a lot of votes fairly quickly on this. The question was simply, which topic that we've discussed tonight is impacting your household the most? Uh, And 70% of the votes cast said taxes. So right along with what uh, Patrick and Brenda and uh, Patrick Chewy have said earlier, uh, 70% agree that taxes are affecting them the most. Uh, The second place vote was for education at 19%, and the remaining 11% were for union accountability votes in the state. Thank you to everybody who has been a part of this conversation tonight. Please don't look at this when we close out the telephone town hall as the end of a conversation, but really the beginning. You can find all of our emails at showmeinstitute.org, and we encourage you to check that website every day, particularly look at our blog. Be sure to look at our 2018 Missouri Blueprint. And by the way, once this call is over, you can actually stay on, and you can leave us a message right here at the end of the call that we will get that we will be able to answer if there's something that you didn't get onto the call or there's an area that uh, you know you just you just weren't sure who to ask we would love to get you that information we'd love to stay in touch with you and of course you can always contact us as well on social media we are on Facebook and our Twitter handle is at showme Thank you so much for your time this evening. Once again, my name is Mike Ferguson. I'm the communications director for Show Me Opportunity, which is the communications organization that represents the Show Me Institute. We look forward to staying in touch with you. Please keep in touch with us. We have events happening all over the state throughout the year. And with that, we'll just tell you all good night and once again, thank you.